Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. One of the more difficult things for any person when they're teaching the Bible is to know at what pace to go. The Bible is a remarkable book. It's fascinating and feeding and, and, and helpful in its big picture, but it's also incredibly helpful in the minutest detail. And there are many pastors or preachers who can make a whole sermon off of one verse or half a verse or one word in a verse. And so it's always a dilemma to know how much to focus upon a certain passage of Scripture and how much to take a broader, bigger picture. As I was taking a look at the text in the weeks before uh, this morning, I, I thought, well, we'd take it up through the end of the chapter. But as we started digging into it, or as I did in my study, I, I really felt compelled to say, well, we really shouldn't go any farther than just consider these three verses. Not because I, I'd like to crawl through a book, but because I think it says something very important to us. Each one of us knows that we're sinners in the abstract, in the general. Can I tell you, this morning, that's not good enough before God. I don't think there's any person among us who would mind saying, I'm a sinner. But to identify ourselves according to specific sins, that's a lot more challenging, isn't it? To say, I sin in this area. To be specific about it. Well, that's far more challenging. It's far more of a rebuke to our pride, to our sense of standing and status. But I think it's necessary. I think that's why Paul spells out these sins specifically. I mean, he could have just talked about the works of the flesh in a very general sense, right? The works of the flesh are bad things that we all do and we shouldn't do them. But he doesn't say that, does he? He very carefully enumerates this list. 17, 18 different terms used to describe the works of the flesh. Now Paul has just written about the battle between the flesh and the spirit and every believer. And though it's an interior, invisible battle, the results of the battle are outwardly evident. And I think it's almost as if Paul apologizes for having to make this list. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. We all know what they are. Do we really have to go through this list? You know what the works of the flesh are. I know. Yet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knows it's important to be specific because we need to know specifically how we walk in the flesh. You see, we can't see the flesh in the way that Paul means it here, but we can see what it does. Some have sought to organize this list in four categories, and I'm going to follow this pattern this morning. The first category is sensual sins. The second, religious sins. The third, what we might call people sins. And the fourth, social sins. And by the way, as we're going to see, we shouldn't regard this as an exhaustive or a complete list. 
But it adequately gives us an idea of what the person who walks in the flesh does. I think it's also fascinating as we get into it next week when we see the fruit of the Spirit. There's 18 terms in the text here used to describe the works of the flesh. There's something like eight terms used to describe the fruit of the Spirit. It's amazing how rich in vocabulary we are in bad words. Because the human heart is full of the evil that these words describe. So he begins with the sensual sins. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness. These are all sensual sins relating to our sexual drives and impulses. Now we're often appalled at the sexual immorality of our day, and we should be. But you need to understand that the times Paul wrote in were at least as bad, probably worse, in terms of a moral climate of their day. So Paul knew he had the need to point these out. He begins by mentioning adultery. Adultery is violating the marriage covenant by sexual immorality. Now this is one of the reasons why I suggested you pick up one of the New King James Bibles, because This word is not included in the list of many ancient manuscripts. So many translations, such as the NIV, don't include it. The NIV may begin here by having the word fornication instead of adultery, and only list three of these sensual sins. But even if Paul didn't write the word on the list, it's included under the next word, fornication. In any regard, adultery is often excused by those who practice it today. Might I say, God doesn't listen to the ways we often seek to justify this adultery. Some people say, well, my partner doesn't understand me. Some people say, but, you know, we're in love. Other people have said, God led us to be with each other. But can I tell you, God doesn't hear it. Look at it here, verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. In nobody's version of the Bible is there the bracketed or italicized words after adultery saying, unless you have a really good excuse. (laughs) Adultery is sin. And those who are guilty of it should confess their sin and repent of it instead of excusing it. Can we say categorically this morning that the Holy Spirit never led anyone into adultery? It wasn't the Spirit of God. What's the next word he uses in verse 19? It's fornication. Fornication is not a word that we use in our modern day society. It translates the Greek word pornea. And it speaks of immorality in a broad sense. That word pornea in the ancient world started out meaning the use of a prostitute. But by Paul's day, it was used for a wide variety of sexual immorality. Therefore, fornication covers any kind of illicit connection between single or unmarried persons. Webster's Dictionary defines fornication as voluntary sexual immorality between two unmarried persons or two persons not married to each other. This is premarital or extramarital sex. Sex outside or before marriage, which Paul here calls fornication, was incredibly widespread and accepted in Paul's day. I mean, it was just accepted. It was understood. 
None of the popular culture of Paul's day considered fornication a sin. But Paul does. The Holy Spirit does. And we say that the Holy Spirit never led anyone into fornication. Might I mention this too, and I believe this is a very important point. Adultery and fornication are understood in relation to marriage, right? Adultery is a violation of the marital bond. Fornication is also, if you want to say, a, a violation of the marital bond that will be. It's premarital sex. Now, some today want to redefine what marriage is. Some don't want to get a legal marriage. And they say, we'll just be married before God. Maybe you've heard that from people before. Some people honestly wonder about the issue. They look in the Bible and they say, well, there's no command that says thou shalt go down to the courthouse and get the marriage certificate. They say, why don't we just make it right before God, right? We don't have to be married legally. We just be married before God. That's all that's important. Well, you can say what you will about that arrangement, but it isn't marriage. Let me read you two definitions of the word marriage from the dictionary. Webster's Dictionary, and this is the 1828 edition. I like it because it's old and it speaks well. It defines marriage as, quote, the act of uniting a man and a woman for life, wedlock, the legal union of a man and woman for life. Marriage is a contract, both civil and religious, by which the parties engage to live together in mutual affection and fidelity till death shall part them. You say, well, that's the 1828 dictionary. Give me something more modern. (laughs) All right. Webster's Unabridged Dictionary, 1993 edition. This is the definition for marriage. The social institution under which a man and woman establish their decision to live as husband and wife by legal commitments, religious ceremonies, etc. Friends, if you're going to call it marriage, then let's use the word that the dictionaries tell marriage means. It's a legal commitment. Now, some will answer and say, well, what if we were on a desert island and there was no one to marry us and no court to record it? The answer is simple. When you're on the desert island, we'll deal with it then. Friends, you're not on a desert island. There are people to marry you. There are courts to record it. And whenever a couple is afraid to follow through with a proper legal marriage, it shows that they don't fully trust each other or they don't fully trust God. Yet they want the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage. And the Bible and the Apostle Paul have a word for that, fornication. There's another word here in verse 19 referring to sensual sins. It's the word uncleanness. It's another broad word. It refers to sexual impropriety in general. It should be thought of as the opposite of purity, right? You know what purity is? Well, uncleanness is impurity. Now, again, let's really apply this to our understanding and to our thinking. Don't many people excuse themselves today by saying, well, we did this and we did that, but we didn't go all the way. It doesn't say you have to go all the way. Is it impure? Is it unclean? Then it's a work of the flesh. Others will say, well, listen, my pornography habit isn't wrong because I'm not actually committing sexual sin with another person. 
It's unclean. It's a work of the flesh. You can't tell me that it's in line with biblical purity, even though you don't go all the way. You can't tell me that it's in line with biblical purity, even though you're indulging your pornography habit, so it's uncleanness. The word uncleanness here is general enough to let us know that all of these things are works of the flesh. Might I say also that uncleanness also covers impure speech or suggestive speaking filled with double meanings. The Holy Spirit never led anyone into uncleanness. Take a look at the fourth word there in verse 19. Now, I... I like this word, not because I like the sin it describes, but because I think it is such an appropriate word for our age, yet our age doesn't know it at all, but they live it. Look at here, verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness. Doesn't that word sound like it should just be in the mouth of a craggy old preacher shaking his bony finger you know, at a bunch of fearful people. Licentiousness. It's a great word. You know what it means in the original language Paul wrote in? It has the idea of being ready to sin at any time. Of someone who flaunts their immorality, throwing off all restraint, and has no sense of shame or propriety or embarrassment. There's the entertainer on the television set conducting themselves in an absolutely unclean, crude, suggestive, sexually immoral, suggestive way on the television screen. That's licentiousness. They should be embarrassed to act that way in front of anybody, much less a television camera. But they have no shame. They have no embarrassment. They're licentious. You see the woman or the girl dressed immodestly, extremely sexually suggestive by the way that she dressed. She obviously dressed that way to get the leers and the attention of men. That's licentiousness. She should be ashamed to dress that way. She should have a deep sense of embarrassment, but she has none. That's what licentiousness is all about. We might think of licentiousness as public and open uncleanness what the previous word was. One great Greek commentator said, a man may be unclean and hide his sin, he does not become licentious until he shocks public decency. Another great Greek scholar, William Barclay, wrote, in many ways, licentiousness is the ugliest word in the list of New Testament sins. Friends, don't we live in an age of licentiousness? Yet the Holy Spirit never led anyone into licentiousness. Never. It's a work of the flesh. Well, there's another category of sins, beginning with verse 20. These are religious sins. He mentions idolatry and sorcery among the works of the flesh. These are sins of worship. And they remind us that it isn't only tragic to worship the wrong God or to seek the wrong spiritual power. It's sinful as well. Idolatry is the worship of any God except the Lord God revealed to us by the Bible and in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's the only true God. To worship any other God is to worship a a God of your own imagination, an idol of your own creation. It's idolatry. 
And when people serve a God of their own opinion, of their own creation, they reject the true and the living God, that's sin, that's idolatry. Whenever a person says, well, you know, I think that God wouldn't send anybody to hell, you know they're an idolater. Because they're not worshiping the God of the Bible. They're worshiping the God of their own imagination. They may prefer the God of their imagination to the God of the Bible. That's their choice. But they're committing the sin of idolatry. The palm reader, the tarot card reader, the woman at the psychic network, the, the person trapped in the cults, idolaters, works of the flesh. And someone might say, well, I can believe whatever I want. And they certainly can. God forbid that we should pass some kind of law against worshiping any way a person would please. I absolutely am committed to the idea that in the United States of America or in any country, people should have freedom of worship. You should have the freedom to be an idolater. Friends, you also bear the consequences of your wrong belief. It's a work of the flesh. And the Holy Spirit never led anybody into idolatry. What's the next one? Sorcery. It's translated witchcraft in the New International Version. Sorcery is the service and the worship of occult and spiritual powers apart from the true God. And it also has another dimension revealed to us by the word for sorcery in the original language. In the original language, the the, the form of Greek that Paul used, it's an ancient form of Greek, not the modern form of the Greek language, but in this ancient form of the Greek language that Paul wrote in, he, he wrote the word pharmakia there for sorcery. Now, you might think that word sounds familiar, and it does. It's from the word for pharmacy. Because in the ancient world, sorcery was always associated with the taking of drugs. One commentator defines sorcery as the use of any kinds of drugs, potions, or spells. You see, in the ancient world, the taking of drugs, especially hallucinogenic drugs, was always associated with the occult. And the Bible's association with drug taking and sorcery points out that drugs open up doors to the occult that are better left closed. Friends, this is a serious thing. Ancient world was filled with this kind of thing. We have to categorically say that if you're taking illicit, illegal drugs, you're in sin. This is a work of the flesh. Well, the Bible says God gave every green herb for the use of man. The pothead says as he wants to toke up. Well, God also created hemlock and arsenic. But he didn't mean for you to take that. It's sin. The Holy Spirit never led anybody into source where you're getting high on drugs. Never. Don't act like you're walking in the Spirit. If you're guilty of that sin this morning, you're walking in the flesh. Let's just face up to it. And God can deal with you in that place. You're not beyond hope. You're not beyond despair. I mean, the Holy Spirit can come and meet and work in your life right now. You can come into this room walking in the flesh terribly so. You don't have to leave here that way. Let's go on here. The the people sins, so to speak, beginning at verse 20. I'll read them all together here. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders. I call these each people's sins. They're sins that primarily express themselves in how we treat others. 
I might say that obviously we've seen here, God cares about our sexual and moral purity. He cares about the purity of our religion and our worship, but he also passionately cares about how we treat one another. If you're patting yourself on the back this morning, well, I'm not guilty of any of those essential sins. I'm certainly not guilty of any of those religious sins. How do you treat other people? God cares a great deal about that. The fact that Paul uses more words to describe these interpersonal sins than any other shows how important it is to God how we treat one another. The first word he uses there in verse 20 is hatred. That describes an attitude of heart. And it somehow will express itself in actions such as contentions and outbursts of wrath or many other works of the flesh. But hatred is the inner motivation for the ill treatment of others. Just as love is the inner motivation for the kind and good treatment of others, hatred is an inner motivation for the evil uh, treatment of others. And we can pass laws to punish the evil men do against each other, but no law can answer the problem of hatred. That's what motivates those acts. You know, and the Holy Spirit never led anybody into hatred. The next word there in verse 20 is contentions. Originally, this world had to do with competition for the rivalry, for prizes. But uh, it commonly came to mean the idea of simply strife. That's how it's translated in Romans 13.13 and in 1 Corinthians 3.3. It simply speaks of a combative and an argumentative spirit. The Holy Spirit never led anybody into contentions. If you've got that combative, argumentative spirit, it's a work of the flesh. Next word there, verse 20, jealousies. It's interesting because this uses a Greek word that's sometimes used in a positive sense. It's the Greek word zealous, and sometimes it describes a positive zeal, as in being zealous for something good. But here, clearly, the connotation's wrong. In this context, it means The desire to have what someone else has. It's the wrong desire for something that's not for us. You see somebody else and you wish you had their life, their gifts, their wisdom, their whatever. Friends, that's a work of the flesh. The Holy Spirit never led anybody into jealousies. Next one, outbursts of wrath. Now that translates a Greek word which speaks of a sudden flash of anger. It's not a settled state of anger. This isn't the person who walks around angry all the time, but this is the person whose anger just kind of flashes out and explodes. And maybe they laugh it off. Well, you know, I've just got a terrible temper. That's a work of the flesh. What do you mean excusing it? That you've just got a terrible temper. It means being unable to control your anger. Might we say that the Holy Spirit never led anybody into outbursts of wrath? Verse 20 also mentions selfish ambitions. That's a very interesting ancient Greek word used here. It's the ancient Greek word aretheia. And the word has, a, as I said, an interesting history. It started out as a perfectly respectable word meaning to work for pay. And over time, it began to mean the kind of work that's done for money and no other reason. Then the word began to be used for politicians who campaign for election 
not for what service they could give to the government and to the people, but only for their own glory and benefit. And so it ended up meaning selfish ambition, the ambition which has no idea of service, and its only aims are profit and power. You know what this selfish ambition is? It's the heart of a person whose first question is always, what's in it for me? That's how they walk around, self-centered. Everything, you know, everything is read through that grid. Well, what's in it for me? To be sure, the Holy Spirit never led anybody into selfish ambitions. Next word, dissensions. It uses the Greek word dikostasia, and literally it means standing apart. In the book of Romans, in the book of 1 Corinthians, this word is translated as divisions. It describes a a society or a group where the members fly apart instead of coming together. Friends, the Holy Spirit never led anybody into dissensions. Last word of verse 20, heresies. Again, this is interesting. You read the word heresies, and you think it means somebody who has the wrong doctrine. They're a heretic. No, that's not the meaning of the word in the original Greek. It translates a Greek word which originally simply meant to choose. But over time, it came to mean someone who expressed their choices or their opinions in a divisive way. Again, today, we tend to think of heresies in terms of wrong ideas and teachings, but the emphasis in the word is actually the wrongful dividing over opinions. Heresies can be thought of as hardened dissensions. And so you understand that there's all the difference in the world between believing that you're right and believing that everybody else is wrong. Unshakable conviction, that's a Christian virtue, isn't it? But unyielding intolerance, that's a sin. And that's the idea behind heresies. The Holy Spirit never led anybody into heresy. First word of verse 21, going on in our list of people sins, it lists the word envy. This specific word doesn't so much want what someone else has, but it's just bitter because someone else has something good and we don't. The ancient thinkers used to call it grief at someone else's good. And somebody else gets the promotion, gets the raise, gets the success, gets something good, and your heart is filled with bitterness because of it. That's a work of the flesh. The Holy Spirit never led anybody into envy. Verse 21, the work of the flesh is murders. There's nothing special in that Greek word. It means murders. Now again, this is another word like adultery earlier that's not in every ancient Greek text, and so it isn't included in such words as the NIVs. But there's no doubt that murder is a work of the flesh and that the Holy Spirit never led anybody into murders. Now we come to our last category here, social sins. Sins that are often committed in the company of other people. Verse 21, drunkenness and revelries. The fact that Paul includes these two sins, I think, is really remarkable because it shows that they were works of the flesh that the Galatian Christians had to be on guard against. You know what it tells us? It tells us that the Galatian Christians, you know, just didn't come to the church out of Sunday school. That 
they had this kind of past. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? Sometimes we come to church and everybody looks so together and straight-laced and figure, well, you know, they probably were those kids in high school that you hated, you know, the goody-two-shoes kind of people, you know, and they never did anything bad. And look at that. No, no. It'd be shocking if we had a past revelation Sunday morning here. Everybody get up and you'd feel uncomfortable about sitting next to that person you're sitting next to probably. But no, you see that the, the early church wasn't made up of people whose pre-Christian lives were of the highest standard. Paul recognizes that, and so he says, listen, give up drunkenness and revelries. And drunkenness is clearly described as one of the works of the flesh. Now, Christians may differ as to whether or not a Christian can drink alcohol, but the Scriptures precisely forbid drunkenness. And might I say, too, that we're not just talking about falling down drunk. That's what some people say. Well, you know, sure, drunkenness is a sin, and I can still stand up, so I must not be drunk. (laughs) No, it speaks of being impaired in any way by drink, and that's a sin, as well as drinking with the intention of becoming impaired. Ephesians 5.18 describes drunkenness as dissipation, which means wastefulness. That's what it is, it's just wastefulness. Certainly the Holy Spirit never led anybody into drunkenness. The final word in this terrible list we've been going through, revelries. Now, that uses the Greek word komos, and it doesn't just mean having a good time. The Bible's not against you having a good time. It means unrestrained partying. It means somebody who has no control, that, that they'll just do whatever they please, and that there's no limits, there's no stops describes the kind of revelry which lowers a man's self and is a nuisance to others. Now take a look at what Paul says here right at the end of the list. He says three important words, and the like. Do you know what that means? That demonstrates that Paul understands this list isn't complete. These aren't the only works of the flesh. It isn't like, well, look, if I can find something that's not covered by this list, I can do it. No, no. Might I say, too, that the works of the flesh, though they are detailed here in the actions, there's also a fleshly way of thinking that leads us into them. If we make these actions or works of the flesh the only battleground, that's not good enough. To really avoid the works of the flesh, it begins with denying the thinking of the flesh. And look at the danger of it all here, verse 21. This is where it gets heavy, folks. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, notice the first words there. Paul says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past. This shows that that Paul was always instructing Christians in how they should live. This wasn't just an occasional emphasis. Paul knew that we're saved by Jesus' grace and by Jesus' work alone, not by what we've done, by what we're doing, or by what we promise to do. But he also knew that those who are saved by God's grace have a high moral obligation to fulfill. Not to earn salvation, but in gratitude for salvation and in simple consistency with who we are in Jesus. So this was Paul's constant message. And what he said, verse 21, is that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. To walk in these works of the flesh is to be in plain rebellion against God. 
And those who are in plain rebellion against God will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what's at stake here? Look at it, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God describes the place where God rules and where the benefits of his rule are received. And because Paul speaks of inheriting the kingdom of God, we understand that he means heaven. Paul says plainly that those who practice such things will not go to heaven. Neither will they know the wonder and the glory of the kingdom of God right here on this earth. But they won't go to heaven. So who are the people in this danger? Look at it there, verse 21. Those who practice such things. Now, the word practice is very important there because it means more than someone who has committed these sins. You might say, well, listen, Pastor David, I've committed adultery. I've committed fornication. I've committed sorcery. I've committed drunkenness. I've committed outbursts of wrath. Am I beyond hope? No. These speaks of those who continue on in these sins, ignoring the voice of the Holy Spirit telling them to stop. I could get into the Greek grammar, the Greek construction, but friends, that's just what it's saying. It means the continuing on. So Look at what he says here. Verse 21. Those who practice such things will not, not might not, not may not, not shouldn't take a chance on it, not know it. There's a certainty, there's a strength in this. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. The strength and the certainty of Paul in this verse is striking. And to our ears, Paul may sound rigid or even harsh here, but he's consistent with the biblical idea of conversion. You know what that means? It means that when we come to Jesus and have our sins forgiven and our soul saved, you know what he also does? He also changes our life. It doesn't happen all at once, and the work will never be perfected on this side of eternity, but there will be a real change nonetheless. Charles Spurgeon was said to have put it this way and put it beautifully. He said, quote, The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. So friends, the the salvation that God brings, it brings a life change also. And the idea isn't that a Christian could never commit any of these sins, but they could never stay in these sins. Let me read you a quote from Martin Luther that I think expresses this very well. He says, Christians also fall and perform the lusts of the flesh. David fell horribly into adultery. Peter also fell grievously when he denied Christ. However great these sins were, they were not committed to spite God, but from weakness. When their sins were brought to their attention, these men did not obstinately continue in their sin, but repented. Those who sin through weakness are not denied pardon as long as they rise again and cease to sin. There is nothing worse than to continue in sin if they do not repent but obstinately continue to fulfill the desires of the flesh, it's a sure sign that they are not sincere. End quote. Friends, maybe you didn't know that some things you were involved in were works of the flesh. Maybe this morning the Holy Spirit's saying to you, stop, then you should be very glad that you're here this morning. Because the Holy Spirit in His love and His goodness and His grace is smiling down upon you right now and He's saying, Yes, let's stop. Let's stop. Let's be free from these works of the flesh. 
See, we can't deny it. This whole chapter lends itself to a searching examination of ourselves. Don't we have the tendency to commonly think that our problems and our difficulties are all outside of ourselves? I mean, we oftentimes think that we'd all be fine if everybody would just start treating us nicer. And if circumstances got better, that's what we really need, right? But this ignores the tenor of this whole chapter. The problems are in us. And they need to be dealt with by the Spirit of God. Ancient great theologian named Augustine used to often pray, Lord, deliver me from that evil man, myself. Now, with that kind of reality check, you can see a new world, a new life. And friends, not one other person has to change. Not one other circumstance in your life has to change. You can have it right now. All we must do is yield to the Spirit of God and begin to truly walk in the Spirit. And that's why I'd say it's virtually compulsory that everybody's here this morning, you have to come back next week. Because it's really incomplete if you don't get what it is to walk in the Spirit. Friends, I tell you, you can have that freedom. You can have that liberty. And maybe this morning the Holy Spirit's just flashing. Stop! Let's stop walking after the works of the flesh. God has a better way, a higher way for you. Let's show that we're Christians by the fact that we don't continue on in the works of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we've read and study this hard.